Welcome to Episode 4 of The Listening Brain. Welcome to The Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Before we get to today's interview, I just want to take a moment to say that if you're interested in childhood hearing loss, or if you're a parent of a child with hearing loss, I encourage you to get involved with the Alexander Graham Bell Association for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, or AG Bell. AG Bell supports listening and spoken language outcomes for children with hearing loss and continues to be an incredible resource for both parents and professionals. So, please visit the website at agbell.org and get involved and support with your time or resources this great organization. And now, on to today's interview. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Glade, PhD. She's a certified speech-language pathologist and a certified auditory-verbal therapist. She provides clinical training and supervision and teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses in the Communication Disorders Program at the University of Arkansas. She's published several articles on the topic of hearing loss and recently published a textbook for undergraduate student clinicians. Dr. Glade is a member of ASHA, the National Council for Rehabilitation Educators, the Alexander Graham Bell Association for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, and is a board member of the Arkansas Hands and Voices, and is president of the Arkansas Speech-Language Hearing Association. Truly, I don't know when Rachel finds time to sleep, but I'm delighted she's with us, and I welcome Rachel to the podcast. Here's my conversation with her. And I'm very pleased to welcome Rachel Glade to the podcast. Rachel, welcome to The Listening Brain. I'm glad you're able to join us today. Hey, it is an honor to be here. I, anytime you need me, I'm here. It's an honor. <laughs> Great. Well, that's good to hear. I'll take you up on that. Um, talk to us about your sort of early life a little bit. You know, where did you grow up? Um, how did you, and then how did that lead to college and getting interested in, in first speech language pathology? Um, well, I grew up in a really tiny town um, in Greer's Ferry, Arkansas. So, I mean, I had a graduating class of 40 people in my class. Definitely a situation where everyone knew everyone. Um, but it was also great because um, in general, most people were pretty supportive. And if, if anyone, you know, if there was a need, people came together as a community to help. And, and I think that may have been where seeds were planted for me to, to eventually pursue a career where I wanted to help people. Um, so from that, um, I was, there also weren't too many things to do. So <laughs> I played basketball and that's, that's what I did. And that's Great. actually how I ended up. Um, I, I got a college scholarship to play for the university of Arkansas at Little Rock, go lady Trojans. Um, so nice. I, I played there for coach Joe Foley for four years. Um, and it was an awesome experience. Um, again, I think kind of those seeds of helping people, building teams, being a part of a larger unit um, were fostered in that environment for sure. 
Um, then um, I went on to college at uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences there. Um, and one of the main reasons that I wanted to go there was because, um, quite frankly, I needed a graduate assistantship, you know, <laughs> and I was able to get one there um, through um, Arkansas Children's Hospital. And um, what, you know, I, I didn't know it at the time when I went from my undergraduate to my uh, graduate career. I, I had, I walked through the door with no preference in terms of what population I was going to see. I just thought, I want to help people. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I started out my undergraduate career um, just thinking I was going to go to med school. And whenever we were practicing a long time and watching a lot of video and then traveling a lot with the team, it was really difficult to keep up with all the demands of pre-med. So then I wound up finding an adjacent field being speech language pathology that allowed me a bit more flexibility. So um, so that's that's how I wound up and, and was able to get into grad school and got a graduate assistantship with Arkansas Children's Hospital that just happened to be in their audiology and speech pathology um, department um, with amazing mentors like Tracy Pate and Patty Martin and subsequently Donna Smiley and mm -hmm. a whole host of other people um, there in that program that were instrumental in shaping my future for sure. Well, the reputation at Arkansas Children's is just phenomenal with those people. And I've had the opportunity to visit and uh, to visit the hospital and to see what they have going on. And I'm, I've always been impressed with what they're doing and, uh, and, and they continue to sort of set the standard. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Dr. John Dornhofer is their cochlear implant surgeon there, and he's, you know, world renowned, but he's also down to earth, and, and he understands the importance of, you know, slotting off time to have team conversations, and, and he understands that idea that everyone has a role to play, and um, we're, we're here to treat the entire child and the entire family unit, not just implant a device, and um, it, it was an amazing experience, yeah. So they recruited you in a sense. They influenced you to sort of look at this area of hearing loss, yeah. even though you were in speech language pathology, like like me, to you know sort of not be in audiology, but look at it from this therapy rehab perspective. That's right. And um, you know, Tracy is an auditory verbal therapist, and you know, my first six months there, of course, I was taking courses and doing other clinical work as well as part of my graduate program. But um, within my first six months, you know, that you come in as a newbie, you're going to do a lot of clerical work, you're going to do a lot of cleaning of tables and toys, and, mm -hmm. you know, you do so much sanitizing of things that your hands get dry. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but in that, I learned the, the small pieces um, and all the support that's needed to make the bigger picture happen. And within six months, I sat down with Tracy and just had a meeting with her, and I said, you know, I think this is where I want to be. I think this is what I want to do because I could see the strong link between, yes, I'm providing therapy services, but I'm also coaching the parents on how they can facilitate these skills. And so it just brought back, it brought, it kind of brought me back home to thinking about a team effort um, mm -hmm. and, and building a team unit and um, just you know, facilitating progress, but it's not just a one-man team. It's it's a multitude of people. So I, I, it brought me home to see that 
that, uh, that format, that approach. Well, I've always heard that it takes a village to raise that child with hearing loss. And, uh, and it really does with everyone who's involved with the family and the child and all the different professionals that come together. Um, so it's interesting to me that you, you sort of saw that situation and you equated that to sort of your team experience. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty awesome. Um, it, like I said, for me, I, I, it hit me in the face, you know, to, to come into those team meetings and see that, you know, we had, you know, a surgeon, an audiologist, social work, uh, you know, speech language pathology team, um, you know, to come in and do the, uh, you know, those staffing meetings where we're all really trying to critically think about what is, what, what's best for this child and that family. And, um, I mean, it, it, it was truly a joy to be able to have that experience. Awesome. So you did your master's, that, that was your undergrad, that's your master's degree working at, um, at the Children's Hospital at Arkansas Children's. And then you had to get a PhD. So how did that, how did that thought get planted? What I would say is while I was in graduate school, I am certain I probably told someone you couldn't pay me to get a PhD. (laughs) Um, I feel pretty confident about that statement. Um, What happened was, um, uh, you know, I got out and and got a job. And uh, since I had some experience with hearing loss and not many other people around me did, um, of course, um, that's, that's what got sent to me. And I had already had that foundation with Tracy and Children's Hospital about, I think I want to maybe pursue my certification. Um, so that eventually led to me helping establish the Northwest Arkansas Hearing Impaired Program for Arkansas Children's Hospital in Northwest Arkansas. So what, what was the job at that point? That um, I started at that point, I started to exclusively see children and adults with hearing loss and working for Arkansas children's working for Arkansas children's at a satellite facility. Yep. At a satellite facility. Um, And at the time that was a very new concept here in Arkansas as well. In fact, at the time they didn't even have a building established. Uh, We were able to, for, for my piece of the puzzle, uh, we were actually able to facilitate a collaboration with the University of Arkansas. And so I had a small space there and offered to help train their students while I was seeing children and adults mm-hmm. with hearing loss. And so, um, so, so that's where we were. And, and after doing that for a few years, which I enjoyed, I just started thinking, you know, here I am, in my mind, spinning my wheels just a little bit, because I'm trying to train these students. I'm trying to work with the families, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm one person with one family at a time. And could I have a bigger impact if I were training more students so that they could then go out and help more families? And um, that eventually planted the seed of me wanting to pursue a, a PhD because I, I wanted to Uh, be able to help more students and also do some more research on, you know, how can we, um, you know, implement and establish best practices uh, for working with children and adults with, uh, with hearing loss. That's (laughs) awesome. So you, you enrolled back at the university? Uh, came back to the University of Arkansas primarily because my family needed to stay in, in Northwest Arkansas as well. I've, mm-hmm. I've got, um, I'm, I'm married and I have two little boys and, um, I, you know, I, I just needed to stay. And um, 
they, uh, the University of Arkansas did not have a PhD program in communication disorders. So um, I was able to find um, a program that was adjacent. Um, again, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm always like trying to find loopholes to make it work. <laughs> right. But it's, it's worked out. Sure. Um, so my PhD is actually in rehabilitation, research, and education. That was the program that it went through. Awesome. Um, another situation, though, it, what, what happened was I had to connect audiology, speech pathology, and vocational rehabilitation. And that wow. is where, <laughs> yeah. where my research line has, has started in starting to look at, okay, well, what does this transition process look like for children who are deaf and hard, hard of hearing from mm -hmm. high school to college or high school to jobs? And then, um, you know, how are individuals with hearing loss treated in the workplace? And how does an oral rehab program impact um, adults who have received cochlear implants? Um, so... I don't know that I would have asked those types of questions had I not been in the PhD program that made me really think about the older spectrum because up to that point, the, the bulk of my experience and, um, you know, literature review, et cetera, had been with pediatrics, but boy, am I glad I did because it, it's a, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole world that I have found to be, you know, one of my passions for sure right now. Right. And, and as you know, you know, I share that passion of being able to work with adults and loving that, that experience as well. Um, just a little bit about my background. I did sort of the same thing that you did in the sense that you, you came back to the same university and got your master's, your, your undergrad master's PhD. I did mine at uh, South Carolina, University of South Carolina. But the only thing that's different is my undergraduate degree in my first career was in journalism. Yeah, very cool. And then I came back and uh, discovered uh, speech-language pathology, and I had an interest in deafness, and, and then that led me to, to uh, getting a master's. And then I had a great professor who worked with me on a master's thesis. His name is Al Montgomery, who's still there, um, who had an interest in adult oral rehab. And so, because he didn't want to work with children, <laughs> and so he um, he kind of you know share, shared you know his knowledge and 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 expertise and wisdom with me, and kind of said you know you want to think about the other end of the spectrum too. That here's the population that also needs to have great practitioners out there working with them. And so, uh, my my PhD when I came back actually is. Uh, working, uh, looking at uh, outcomes with adults uh, with hearing loss. So, so it's it's been a, a great opportunity for me to sort of have that experience and to love working with children, but also love working with those adults who are usually also extremely motivated. They wanna they wanna do well. They wanna get better. They wanna hear better, and they're not screaming and crawling under the table usually. Behavior seems to be much better, I have found, with the adult population. <laughs> that is right. That is true. Um, a funny story on the, uh, my, my first actual taste of research, going back to having a great mentor, I was, as I said, a you know, speech pathology student in my master's degree, and I was thinking about doing a thesis. Um, ultimately, ended up doing a research project, but I couldn't get, um, at the time, I had asked, you know, 
poor little measly graduate student knocking on everyone's door, hey, I think I want to look at audiology and speech pathology and maybe auditory verbal therapy. Like, mm -hmm. I couldn't get anybody to, to jump on the train with me, you know. Um, so uh, I went and knocked on the door of Dr. Samuel Atcherson. And... Yes. <laughs> And he is um, still currently at UAMS, and he was the first one to kind of say, hey, let's see what happens with this, and believe in me enough to let me tackle what ended up being a research project with so many holes in it. It was, you know, at the time, it was the best quality work that I could do, but looking back, you know, just bless him for giving me a chance to do it, but it's definitely something I've thought about now as a professor that I don't ever... I don't ever want to, you know, make a student feel that there's not a chance because had he not given me a chance and then even whenever I, you know, went to the PhD program, you know, uh, my mentor there was uh, Brent Williams and Sam Atcherson actually uh, served, he served on a couple of my committees with that as well. Um, and Brent Williams is, uh, he, uh, he's the principal investigator on the, a big promise grant, which is about mm -hmm. training children with special needs um, right. for vocational things. But anyway, um, had he not given me a, a glimmer of hope um, that I could be successful in the PhD program, I probably would have been like, well, you're probably right. I should probably not do this. Um, I try to carry that over when working with parents too, because I see myself in them sometimes when they come in the door and they just seem completely defeated or maybe they're just brave enough to ask a single question and you know, they, you can just tell that what your response is going to be is going to have a huge impact on them. And so, you know, kind of keeping that growth mindset that, you know, we always have the ability to grow and what you're doing is good, but I wonder how we could be better. Um, that's, um, I definitely try to carry that um, into therapy sessions as well. Yeah. I, I I like how you phrase that, you know, the, in terms of having that growth mindset that things can always improve that, you know, we, ha we have to find a way to make things better. And, and I think that goes back to, you know, giving parents hope and making sure they, they see that there's hope that there's a way to, to do things differently and that maybe you know, the stories you've heard or the things, the image you have of deafness from 40 years ago or 30 years ago is not exactly the way it is today. And uh, I think the other thing that I have found, I've been listening a lot re uh, recently to, um, to Brene Brown. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she talks about vulnerability and being vulnerable. And it's, uh, I think, it's also very important for, I think, for clinicians to be authentic and to be vulnerable with parents so that you can make those connections in a, in a very human way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I, I have found that to be very important uh, at this stage of my, of my career. I think whenever I was a, a young clinician, I was very hesitant to admit that what I planned just didn't work out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you have amazing lesson plans and you feel like I'm going to knock this out of the park and the kid is just not into it. The family's mm -hmm. not into it. And I think I almost put maybe too much pressure to think, okay, this has to go perfectly, right? Right. Instead of seeing 
kind of the joy of the moment that if it doesn't go well, there's still an opportunity to teach language here. And there's still an opportunity to tell the family, you know what, this was the plan. It didn't go so well. So maybe let's adjust and try a different path. I think there's humility in that. And it helps mm -hmm. the families to see too, that, you know what, we're just people too. Um, that's something that I didn't do early on that I feel much better doing now. And I don't know if that's just come with age or experience or I don't know, or maybe just <laughs> life. But um, I definitely think that humility piece of it's okay to be wrong too right. is, is hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I always ask my parents, even when I think I've had a great session, I'll ask how, how could I have done this better? Mm -hmm. What could we have done differently? Because I usually, like you, have graduate students with me. Um, and whether that's, you know, after a, or at the end of a telepractice session or an in-person session that I'm doing, I, I'll ask, you know, how could I do this better? You know, what, what, what do you think? You know, and, and I think that sends the message of that partnership with the parent. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I value their input. And, and sometimes things that I think went really well, they may not have the same opinion. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it, it, it does help you have a very, um, I think, a much stronger relationship with the parents. Mm -hmm. And it gives you much needed feedback as a professional. And I think you just have to, with the experience, you just feel comfortable I, I, I use the word vulnerability, but, you know, being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think when, when you're able to do that, I think you can um, be a better clinician because you're I, learning. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think I tell my students oftentimes, uh, you know, you get into this field and if there's ever a day that you wake up and you think, you know what, I've got this figured out. I don't need to really spend any more time with professional development. That's the day you probably need to hang it up because... That's right. <laughs> It, this is just, this is a field that you can continually learn. And if you ever feel like you're, you know, almost bigger than knowledge in the field, then it's, it's, it's time to go because that, that's not going to help. <laughs> right. I, one of my colleagues would say, often said, and I don't know where uh, she got this, this statistic, but she said, you know, in five years, 70% of what you learn in grad school in speech language pathology is probably going to be obsolete. Mm -hmm. And of course, the grad students are sitting there thinking, well, why am I paying all this money to get, <laughs> to get this degree then? But it's, it kind of goes back to what you're saying. If you depend solely on what you're learning right now, and that's how you're going to practice the rest of your career, then you're going to be, you're going to, it's going to be a disservice to the people that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there have been so many, you know, technological advances and things like that. I mean, even since I've been practicing, I've had to learn a lot of new ones, but it's, that that's part of it. I mean, if, if learning something new can help you to provide a better quality of service, then, I mean, it's worth the time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It sure is. Yeah. So your days now, you've, you've finished your PhD, you've joined the faculty. And so you are now teaching and doing clinical work. So let's talk a little bit about 
what you find yourself doing now, your, your average week, basically? Oh my goodness. It's busy like everyone else's. <laughs> um, so I teach graduate and undergraduate level courses. Um, I was able to revamp the introduction to clinical practice course at the undergraduate level a couple of years back. And I love it because it is awesome to see, uh, the, you know, fresh undergrad clinicians, um, learn about all the different settings and uh, clinical documentation. And I work really, really hard in that class. Um, we do several directed observations where we'll watch videos and we'll play a little bit and then I'll say, okay, what'd you see? What, you know, what are, what, what goals could we be targeting? How could we be taking data? Um, and I really, I really hope um, that they feel confident in their ability to do clinical documentation, data collection, and probably most importantly, in my opinion, observation skills, right? Sure. Can, can you figure out, can, can you read a little bit on how the kid is feeling, how parent is feeling? Um, you know, could they have done more or should we have pulled back? Should we have made that objective easier or harder? Um, so that's, that class is definitely one of my babies that I'll try really hard not to ever have to give up, but we'll see. <laughs> sure. um, and then um, probably my second favorite class, well, I don't know, maybe a tie, because I, I, I don't get to teach it as often, but I teach an advanced oral rehab course, and that is one that I get to teach, um, and it's really my only chance to hone in on auditory skills across the lifespan. And so that's what we do. We break it up. The whole course is broken up across the lifespan and we talk about assessment and intervention of each piece. And that very easily could be broken up into two courses, but, um, or more, but, um, I try to get in as, as much as I can. And, um, it's really great because, I find what ends up happening by the end of the semester is that the students realize, oh my goodness, auditory skills really are the foundation for spoken communication across the lifespan. Right, <laughs> so, exactly. You know, if, if we can get a handle on these skills, then we can use this regardless of what, I mean, whether we're in a school setting or we end up in a geriatric setting or, you know, wherever we end up in it doesn't even always have to be with a person with hearing loss either. That's right. And, and that's something that, um, you know, whenever I first mention it in a class, students are like, you know, I get the eyeballs. Um, but that's, mm -hmm. it's the truth. It's the truth that they can figure out that foundational piece and understand um, what that hierarchy looks like. You can, it's, it's applicable. Everywhere. That's right. Yeah. I love it when the graduate students start connecting the dots. Yes. Not, you know, if, from the child with hearing loss to the adult with hearing loss, pretty straight line. But, you know, well, I'll talk to my students about, you know, what about that, that adult that's had a stroke or a TBI yep. and you're now working on some cognitive retraining and you're working on auditory memory skills? What are you going to do? And they're like, well, I don't know. You know, I said, well, it's the same thing. You know, you have to draw these lines between, you know, and then they, the lights start to come on. Oh, okay. You know, because they're, they're so used to just put, putting everything in their own little boxes. Yes. You know, and, you know, and, and not sort of seeing the links between. Yeah. I mean, I think that's 
probably the most critical part of graduate school is that critical thinking mm -hmm. piece, right? Of right. how to, how to connect the dots. Um, so, so I usually teach two to three days a week. And then when I'm not teaching, um, I have clinic two to three days a week, just depending mm -hmm. on what those gaps look like. Um, and so I'm transitioning just a little bit into doing more consultation type services for kids. Um, up to now I've been, you know, for almost, gosh, well, right at a decade, seeing, you know, kids in clinic, um, training parents as well. But now I'm transitioning into where I'm actually going to be mentoring more uh, professionals who are pursuing their certification in auditory verbal therapy and um, providing consultation um, in, in this region and beyond um, for pediatrics. And then um, for the geriatric piece right now where I'm at, there is, um, I, I'm the only provider right now. Um, mm -hmm. We're just in a situation where um, I think within at least a 200 mile radius, um, I'm the only one that's doing um, the oral rehab for adults with cochlear implants. And so um, that's the piece that I, I really, I need to keep right now. And I'm um, in the process of developing a teletherapy program as well, because as mm -hmm. you know, it's often very difficult for um you know, our, our geriatric folks to be able to get to clinic. That's one of the biggest barriers that I've had so far. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm going to continue to uh, train students through it. And, um, you know, I, I'm having to kind of balance and look at where, where am I most needed so that we can reach more people faster. And right. I think right now that is to do the consultation piece with the, with the pediatric uh, side and work on developing this uh, geriatric uh, program. So. Oh, that's a, that's a lot to sort of take on. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I, I hope you're getting the support there that you need to, to be successful. Uh, you know, I think so. I think uh, the university is pretty open to um, thinking about new clinical education models. Um, and that's kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're a research one level institution, which just means you're supposed to do a lot of it, right? right. And so <laughs> um, if, if a new, um, you know, they are open to if a new, you know, clinical education model can also help to facilitate some research, then it's typically not too hard of a sell. But we'll see. I may have some battles ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's great that you have that support because because uh, there is you know lots of pressure right now on on universities, you know, with monies and a lot of states have cut the funding going to universities, which I think is a real a real problem. Uh, we certainly face that here in Ohio with uh, University of Akron and many of our state universities. Um, um, so I'm, I'm glad you have the support and they'll give you the freedom to, to do the things that you want to do. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think, I, I think there's real potential. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, some advice. What, what advice would you give some of those or what advice do you give some of your students maybe starting off in this field or are some young professionals who are thinking about uh, the LISL certification process or even maybe thinking about a PhD? Those are like three loaded questions. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's start with thinking about uh, speech so we had speech pathology, AVT, PhD. Um, so for the speech pathology piece, um, so my advice there is that whether you're an undergrad or a graduate student and you're thinking about speech pathology, 
um, you're, you're going to be doing some observations or you're going to be a student clinician and you no doubt will have situations where you have an amazing connection with your supervisor or a not so amazing <laughs> connection with your supervisor. And my advice to my students often is you have to figure out where, where are the gold nuggets, right? Because even if you have what feels like a terrible situation with a supervisor, there is something that that person does well that you can potentially identify and pull into your future practice. And so maybe it's something as simple as how they greet their patients. Right. Maybe it's documentation. Maybe it's they've achieved a mutual level of respect with physicians. And you know how did they facilitate that? figure out what you can capitalize on to do well in your future career and take that. Um, and the other thing I say, especially to young clinicians, um, is try to be a light wherever you're at because it is so easy to get bogged down in just some negativity, be it that you're dealing with, you know, a very interesting parent or an interesting colleague or all of the above. Um, if you let yourself go to a dark place of negativity and then you engage in negativity, I have yet to see that work out for the positive. And if you, so if you can figure out a way to say, okay, you know, I understand that's the way you feel, but just walk away from those types of negative situations and try to figure out, okay, how can I be a light in this situation? Or how can I try to see the situation from the other person's point of view? You know, is that parent having a really rough time because they have a lack of support in some other area of their life? It, is my colleague having a rough time because there's something going on personally that I don't know about? Um, try to see it from the other side before automatically assuming negative. So that's what I would say for speech pathology piece. Mm -hmm. um, for the PhD piece, I would say, to me, the question is, you know, number one, how do you feel about reading a lot of articles? <laughs> <laughs> because right. if, if reading articles makes you want to, you know, um, go to sleep, then mm -hmm. it's probably not a good choice. Um, but on the flip side, if reading articles feels like fuel, thinking that, oh my goodness, I need to examine this more, or hey, this could apply to this policy that I know that's in development, or maybe this could apply to my colleague who's got a project that's going on, and you start thinking that way, then you probably need to think about a PhD, because you, you may have an opportunity to contribute to the field in research, or in program development, or policy development, or something like that, and so that, that would be my advice for the PhD. And so certification, Cert AVT or Cert AV Ed. Um, obviously, I'm really biased on this topic. Because um, <laughs> my first thought is, well, if you like seeing progress happen quickly, you should go for it. <laughs> right. um, now, that's not to say that all cases make, you know, not all kids make fast progress. But in general, if you're able to, you know, have that collaborative uh, relationship with the parents and the caregivers, um, oftentimes you do see really good progress. And sometimes a major part of our role is just to point out what that, what the teeny tiny progress is. I mean, maybe for a little one, it's, oh my goodness, it, you're, they just showed us joint attention for 
a second and a half. That's amazing. That's huge. They weren't doing that two weeks ago. Um, or, you know, maybe they showed us their first auditory response that parents didn't even realize was an auditory response. Um, and then it's the same thing on the adult side. If you enjoy that, that interaction, because I, I like to have caregivers in my sessions too, if the adults feel comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. um, and not caregivers, I'm sorry. Um, a significant uh, partner, a frequent communication partner. Maybe, uh, maybe it's a spouse or a neighbor. Or I, I had one lady that brought in her a whole group, uh, her little <laughs> ladies group. <laughs> um, and, and that's fine. That's the more the merrier. Um, but that idea of connecting with other people to help them realize where they're making progress and how they can continue to build. Um, if, if you're interested in that kind of a team approach. ABT is, is where you need to be. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wonderful advice. And I really appreciate your time today. So I thank you for, for being on the podcast. And uh, I really wish you luck in all these things that you're doing. Thank you so much. I, I, I will probably keep you on speed dial to be getting some advice along the way. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Rachel is an inspiration for all of us. I, for one, really appreciate other faculty members in speech-language pathology who have an interest in listening and spoken language outcomes for children with hearing loss. There are just not that many of us, and Rachel is really doing some great work. So keep an eye on her. She's going to be doing some really great stuff, and I can't wait to see what else she is able to accomplish. So if you're passionate about what we're doing with this podcast, please consider leaving us a favorable review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to this podcast. Reviews help me reach new listeners, grow the show, and lets us continue to put out content that you enjoy. This podcast has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network, and thank you, as always, for listening.